to episode 86 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. With the world still on lockdown, we are going back a couple of months to review a movie we didn't get a chance to talk about during its theatrical run, but which you can now rent or buy on VOD. That movie is, of course, Lee Wanell's The Invisible Man. But first, how are you holding up, Scott? I'm holding up okay. Um, you actually, you can only rent, unfortunately. You can't buy. Uh, oh. Yeah, it's just the $20 for the renting. But uh, I'm holding up. I say the one the one sad part is that the first victim of my household fell last night uh, to the coronavirus, most likely. That was my fish. My fish passed away. Uh, scuba can rest in peace, hopefully. Rip. Uh, yeah, true rip. But, uh, you know, I, I got back out there uh, today and, and got a new fish. So... Uh, all, Not a lot of grieving. Moving on fast. No, well, dealing with my grief by getting a new fish. Yeah, uh, I'd also been coming in terms of like my fish was probably going to die for a while because he's been acting like an app, like like he was going to die for about two or three weeks, and so I'm honestly surprised he lasted as long as he did. But yeah, we can call that the first casualty of the coronavirus in in my life, and uh, hopefully, hopefully the last. Yeah. But other, other than that, holding up well, my had my birthday last week, and still managed to make the most of it, uh, even in these times that we are living in, which is quite something uh, at this point. But yeah, overall playing a lot of board games. I'm playing Pandemic Legacy with my girlfriend and uh, we're about a third of the way through that. It's a really fun uh, cooperative board game that is appropriate for the times, probably. Yeah. And uh, playing some other board games as well here and there. But otherwise, between that and still cranking through my Pixar movies, Pixar rewatches and trying to keep up with some of these recent VOD releases as well. Between that, it's keeping me busy enough. Yeah, you know, talking about board games, even in a quarantine, even when the hours are passing really slowly and I'm looking for anything to, to kill an hour or two, I still don't think I want to play Monopoly. <laughs> you and uh, my girlfriend feel very similar about that. Karen hates Good, me. good. Yeah, I mean, good I don't mind Monopoly of my own free will. I, I don't mind it as much as you guys do, but I, I like Monopoly. Good on you, Karen. Yeah, I mean, it's just because, right, like our friend group in high school were the worst people to play Monopoly with because they were just like they were annoying when they played the game. And they would pay, like when you were out, when you were done, they would keep like trying to pay you to so that you'd stay in the game just to prolong the game. Like it was, it was just brutal. Uh, so that has, that has uh, poisoned me on Monopoly for forever, I think. But you know, I, I, I'm up for a good game of Settlers of Catan sometime. Yeah. That's, that's a good time filler for sure. Yeah. I, Catan is hard to play with two players. Um, there are some expansions that you can yeah. buy to make it two players, but that, no, that's a great, that's a great three. I mean, three to four person. If you have the five to six person expansion, that's good too. Uh, if you do need any, any board game or card game recommendations, uh, Scott, or any of our listeners out there, I've acquainted myself with quite a few over the last few weeks. So if you need any recommendations, hit me up. There you go. Just doling out those recommendation recommendations in all areas of media that, uh, that we can get our hands on. Um, uh, all right, Scott. Well, speaking of, of another type of media, let's let's go ahead and get to the movie. Uh, the Invisible Man tells the story of Elizabeth Moss's Cecilia Cass, a woman who is trapped in an abusive marriage to tech genius Adrian Griffin until suddenly, mysteriously, Adrian commits suicide. Or so it seems. 
Unfortunately for Cecilia, her problems don't disappear with the death of her, of her abusive husband. Instead, she starts to witness strange phenomena around the house where she lives with her cop friend James, played by Aldous Hodge, and his daughter Sydney, played by Storm Reed. A burner is suddenly turned up on the stove, setting the kitchen on fire. A shocking act of violence is committed against Sydney, and a hurtful email is sent from Cecilia's email account to her sister Emily, played by Harriet Dyer. As Cecilia begins to suspect that her husband is somehow invisibly haunting her, she struggles not only to overcome his plot, but to convince the rest of the world that her theory is true. Scott with the Invisible Man, Wanell, and Blumhouse have dredged up an old Universal monster favorite. Can they breathe new life into this decades-old character, or is this Invisible Man's latest haunting merely, well, invisible? Yeah, so I'm not super familiar with the original you know, work. I haven't read the H.G. Wells novel, and I also haven't seen any of the prior adaptations of The Invisible Man. And so I wouldn't say that I was going in hesitant because things that I saw in the trailer, I think it made it look pretty good. Uh, the The only thing that I was a little bit hesitant about was like, okay, will this, will this lean into the tropes of the horror genre that is, you know, jump scares a little bit more than it should and lean more on that than other elements of the genre that if, over the past few years, if you look at different movies and you know, going all the way back to it follows, but uh, also a quiet place. And I mean, we were supposed to get a quiet place part two, just a couple weeks ago uh, and movies like that, that I think are newer entries to the horror genre. I mean, just going back to the platform last week, for example. Um, and I think that this movie balances both. I think that it, it definitely utilizes jump scares as you'd expect a movie with the concept of the invisible man too, but it also does a great job building anxiety, tension, and fear just around the blank, canvas of the screen essentially you know there are a couple scenes before you get to one of those scenes that you talked about with in the kitchen with the burner being turned up and the knife disappearing where it just pans to an empty room and it just makes you wonder whether something is there and it does that several times more throughout the movie but it does it without anything happening to the scene a couple times before it even introduces you to the fact that the invisible man whoever it actually is is there in the room um with 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 C, uh, and so I think it, it as a horror movie, watching this film, thinking about it, sitting with it, it's it's been you know I think a week actually since I seen the movie, and you've seen it even longer ago I believe. This feels like a film that you should add into the genre, and with those newer movies like A Quiet Place, like It Follows, The Platform, other other films that we've talked about on the podcast, and if this is the direction the mainstream horror genre is going. I might have to reconsider whether I consider myself a horror fan or not. Cause I think up to this point, you know, I wouldn't ever say that horror is my genre, but you know, movies are starting to convince me that, that maybe this is cause I was a really big fan of this movie. I think I've been a perennial Elizabeth Moss doubter, both on and off air on this podcast. I think she's really good in this film. And I think that uh, a lot of this movie relies on the psychological states that she's going through in this film, the psychological journey that she goes on as she tries to rest, wrestle with the idea that her boyfriend, not husband, actually, they're not, they're not married. It's a, it's wild. Yeah, it, I, it's I did been, double check. It's been a while 
like you said, it's been a while since I've seen the movie. And so I was going to qualify it by saying that there may be some things that I do not remember as well. Apparently, I, I got something wrong in the plot description, but there you go. It's a minor detail. It, I don't think it, yeah. it matters whether they're married or it's just a relationship that they're in. But they are in not they're not married. They're just in a relationship. It does seem like it's a situation that is indistinguishable from marriage or otherwise, which is why it doesn't really matter. But anyway, I think that uh, when you talk about this relationship, I think that there's definitely some, and I know it's one of the things that you want to talk about, and it's probably just talked about in general with this movie, is the undertones of of Me Too and how that whole movement over the last few years and this reconciliate, uh, I guess this kind of reconciling of that in Hollywood as, as being a reality, I think definitely works its way into this film for the most part in a positive way. I think that there, there are some good things uh, added to the plot and the themes of this film through that. And uh, overall, when you put this story, the modern adaptation that Lee Winnell is able to write and then direct on the screen. Overall, I mean, I think I talked last week about how Onward was my favorite movie of 2020 so far. I think this takes the number one spot right now. I think this is a really strong film. And I'd, I'd recommend this to anyone who thinks uh, that a, you know, watch the trailer. If you think it's going to be interesting, I think the trailer gives you a really, really good sense of what this movie is going to be. I think you really get uh, exactly what you're sold in the trailer in, in a positive way. Yeah, Scott, you can attest that I've been saying for, for quite a while that we are kind of living in a golden age of horror movies. And I think, you know, you can go back to It Follows. You can go back maybe even further to find sort of when this began. Yeah, but, um, you know, it, it remains true, I think. And I think The Invisible Man is, uh, you know, an, another entry that upholds, you know, what I've been saying for for all of these years. And I think that, it you know, it says a lot about how far we've come in this genre that, I can go to a movie like The Invisible Man and I can expect that that movie is going to be good because I think if you go back 10, 15 years ago, this movie probably would not have been good. I mean, if you look at what the horror landscape looked like in the 2000s, it wasn't good. Uh, I mean, you could you could probably count on your, on two hands the number of really, really great horror movies that came out in that whole decade. Um, whereas, you know, in, in the 2010s, we're getting three or four really good ones a year. Um, and so, I mean, I, I was just, just thinking back to 2017, like we had Get Out, we had Raw, we had uh, Happy Death Day. We had like, that's three right there all in, in, in one year. And yeah, you can see there. 2017 though, you get another movie by the studio, Universal that is, and that's The Mummy. And you certainly wouldn't yeah. want this movie made alongside that. But because the movies that you're generally talking about, they're, I mean, they're not big studio films. Those are more on the independent side. And I think it took it starting on the independent. I mean, we could probably have a whole episode on this, but I think it takes starting on that independent side of movies to make the big studios realize what's actually commercially successful in terms of you can make a you can make a good horror movie and make it successful. I mean, Universal is ultimately just partnering with Blumhouse to hopefully get them to do it for them. But that's exactly what you're what you're seeing here, and we're reaping the rewards of that, even with a big studio film like The Invisible Man being made by Universal. Yeah, and I mean, I think Blumhouse has been on a little bit of a losing streak, I think, here with stuff like Black Christmas and uh, Fantasy Island. And so I think this was a much needed comeback for them. And I think what's so interesting about what they do is that their horror movies are just really all over the map in terms of what they're providing. I mean, you have something like Happy Death Day, for example, which is just a fun, goofy slasher movie, you know, that with a lot of rewatch value. And then you have like these prestige horror movies like Get Out and Like Us. Um, and I honestly, I think The Invisible Man leans more towards that category than it does, you know, the the one-offs. I think that because of the, the themes and what's going on here beneath the surface, right, it's not just 
um, a creature feature. It is, um, you know, it, it is a movie about uh, uh, domestic abuse. It is a movie about Me Too um, and, and some other, you know, re really sensitive women's issues, I think, make it fit more in the uh, prestige category. But again, Blumhouse is doing stuff all over the map. And, and yeah, I think this is a really successful movie um, as both a genre piece and as something more than that. Um, I think that the the set pieces work really well. Um, you know, you could probably see that just from the trailer that um, they they do a, a really effective job um, of creating a sense of dread uh, through this, ju just through the very existence of the Invisible Man, because you never know where he could be. Um, you never know when he's in a, a particular room. You never know where he could be. I mean, really, you're on edge the entire time because at any point, something could happen. Uh, and I think that they get a lot of tension out of that and they get a lot of surprise as well, again, because you don't know when he's going to act. There may be moments when you feel pretty comfortable and then all of a sudden something shocking happens. And I'm thinking of one scene in particular that, of course, we'll get into. Um, but I think that the genre elements work really well. And I think that the, you know, the themes are, are, are well suited to this type of story as well. I think they're towards the end a little bit I think he does bite off a little bit more than he can chew. And we'll talk about maybe why I say that. But for the most part, I think the Me Too aspects, I think the abuse, I think gaslighting, I think all of these issues are taken on in a really um, uh, effective and relevant way. And I think Elizabeth Moss's performance is at the center of all this. Um, and she really makes us feel her pain throughout. I think it is um, a, a very effective performance. So yeah, this is, I mean, you, this movie's been out a while now. You probably already knew this, but this is a good movie. And, uh, if you haven't checked it out yet, you know, I, I don't know if it's worth the $20 just cause I, I tend to think $20 is pretty steep for any movie you're renting unless it's little women. Um, but, uh, it, it's definitely worth checking out when the price drops or if you don't mind dropping the 20, uh, you know, it, I guess it is if, if you're, if it's you and your significant other or whatever, um, and, it is like going out to the movies. I guess it's it's an equivalent cost. So maybe you don't mind dropping the 20. Either way, it's worth seeing. Um, and, and I think that Blumhouse is back on track here with the type of movie that, movie that they need to be making more often. Yeah, I will say you could probably wait a month or two and get this, you know, either at like a five, the $5 rental price that I think where most people are accustomed to just based on that, that's how things have been on VOD when something actually releases after that, after the window, the theatrical window, but also with Peacock coming out in just a month or two, I think that you can expect to see this on the streaming service uh, when it, when it does, when it does come out, that's NBC universal streaming service. So uh, if you can wait a month or two, if you don't really feel any sense of urgency to get this, I think again, it might not, it might be worth it. Cause even me, I mean, I don't, I don't usually mind shelling out cash to watch, you know, to rent movies that I want to see, but $20, it really, it really does feel like a lot. I, I wonder if they'll, revisit that number and maybe even just drop it to 15. I think even 15 might say, might feel a little bit more palatable to people. That being said, um, one of the things that I do want to say just to the point around uh, successful, uh, the kind of the arc of 2000s horror movies to now, I mean, Lee Winnell himself here we're talking about. I mean, the person didn't, didn't direct, I don't think, I don't think he directed too many of them, but he wrote most of the Saw franchise. And so to, to have a director who, you know, I'm a big fan of the first Saw movie. I think that's actually a, a, a pretty good slasher film uh it is a, a bit of a torture porn film of course and especially when you get to the later ones it gets i think it just gets absolutely absurd in some of the later ones but it's so interesting to see a, a writer director like lee winnell now doing something like the invisible man doing something you know very 
different than what he was doing 10, 15 years ago with the Saw franchise. And I think that just shows you the evolution of horror as well. Yeah, and Upgrade as well, which was his last movie, which yeah. wasn't even a horror film. It was like a sci-fi action movie. Um, mm -hmm. I think he's really, uh, I, I think what we see is that he's really sort of, he ha he has his ear tuned to what people are, are digging and what uh, types of movies are getting a lot of attention. Um, and, and so I think that's why he has gone for something, you know, deeper than you would get with a Saw film with, here, here with this movie. So, yeah, I think that's, that's, an, that's a good point. And, and it does just show how horror has evolved over the past decade in a very good way and i will say too with regards to renting the movie there really isn't a sense of urgency right now right because there's not any more movies coming out for quite a while probably so it's not like if you don't watch this now you're going to fall behind because then all, a bunch of other movies are going to start coming out that you need to watch that's true there's not there's not anything coming out really except for you know straight to streaming movies trolls world tour i don't know if you're looking forward to that one but that will be coming out um but i think you can afford to wait um is my point and see if the price goes down maybe in a month's time to your point scott but let's move ahead now to uh, the central performance here, Elizabeth Moss, um, who, you know, she's really garnered a reputation as sort of an indie darling, I guess, in recent years with the types of films that she's doing. Her Smell being the most recent one. Last year, a lot of people really wanted her as like a dark horse Oscar candidate. Um, never really had a chance, but a lot of people were really rooting for her to, to maybe get her name in there for that movie. Um, and, and in general, she's taking she's just taken on some really adventurous roles in recent years. Scott, you, you said that you're not a huge fan of her in general, but um, what did you think about her work here in another sort of offbeat role for someone who's a pretty notable name? Yeah, I, I mean, like I said just a few minutes ago, I, I think this is this is a really good performance. I do really like this performance. I think this is the, the first time I've seen it. I, I haven't seen her smell, to be fair to her. But this is probably the first thing that I've I've seen her in, at least in terms of film, where I've been like, wow, that was really good. Uh, I haven't watched The Handmaid's Tale, which I know is obviously one of her big breakout roles. I didn't, I, the few, I mean, the, the little bit that I watched of Mad Men, I mean, really not much of that show really worked well for me. Uh, so that's probably not the most fair to her either. But I mean, she did things like The Kitchen last year, which of course was a disaster, but not entirely her fault or really her fault at all, probably. I didn't see that film either, but that was a disaster. Um, and then she wasn't us that, I mean, that whole subplot of us didn't, I mean, it was like, whatever for me, I thought it was like mildly interesting, but really I just cared more about the central family. But as for the invisible man. Yeah. I mean, this performance really works for me. I think this is, like I said, you know, this is the performance that might convert me into Elizabeth Moss, uh, supporter. Cause I think that what she's able to do with this role, the range she's able to show both from, a you know, very controlled performance but also you know in other moments even sometimes right next to each other very seemingly unstable performance i think that that range uh, that she's able to craft in scene to scene moment to moment really works well uh for this character who is you know been pushed to the edge by her relationship by the gaslighting by the emotional abuse that she's been put through in this relationship that she has uh with her boyfriend and to then see that develop over the course of the film when, you know, she gets out of the relationship, but now she's experiencing the same doubt and gaslighting and disbelief among her close friends, her other members of her family, whether it's her sister, whether it's Aldous Hodge's character, like you were mentioning, you know, all these people uh, from, at, you know, at one point or, or the other over the course of this film, 
doubt her and try to convince her that what she's experiencing isn't real and make her and make her uh, dis disbelieve her own senses and her own self awareness. And of course, part of that is the invisible man, that the titular figure that's kind of driving those other people to gaslight her in that way. But I think that the experience and the journey, like I said, the kind of psychological and emotional journey that you go on with her feels so real and so believable because of the performance that Elizabeth Moss gives. And I mean, absolutely stand out, a standout performance. And uh, if we get anything in the semblance of an Oscars later on this year, I hope that this performance does make it, you know, through the, uh, I don't even know what, what you call it these days, but the months that, that are intervening between now and, and the Oscars in, you know, 11 months time. Yeah, you know, you know, Scott, we're talking about recent horror movies. I think if we have to compare this movie to one that we saw recently, it's probably Midsommar, uh, just in terms of the themes that it takes on. Uh, but I also think the performance of, of Elizabeth Moss did remind me a lot of uh, what Florence Pugh did in Midsommar. Uh, and that is definitely a good thing, uh, if you know how I felt about Midsommar at all. Uh, I think that she gets put through the emotional ringer, right? Like she uh, really has to experience everything on the emotional gamut in this movie. But I think that she uh, has such great control over her performance and control over her emotions to where it never feels like it's never overbearing. It's She's never overreacting or anything. It feels like the exact reaction that someone in her position would have. Uh, and, and I think that that's, that's really important because the movie, um, you know, you have to, be on this character's side the whole time where she she's really standing alone throughout the entire movie because no one else really believes what she's saying. And obviously we know that what she's saying is true because we can see it for ourselves as well. Uh, but I think her performance is, is very crucial, like I said, in showing that control and, and not uh, losing control of her emotions or anything like that. Um, I think that uh, that that is the effective um, part of her performance. And, you know, like you said, you use the word real. I think it is real. It just feels like this is you know, obviously this this situation literally hasn't happened to a lot of women, but it feels like the performance she's given is, you know, it feels like it could be what a lot of other women experience um, in terms of, you know, Me Too and uh, having their accusations doubted and stuff like that by society. And I think that's that's why it's effective. What you actually see on screen are, are aspects of a relationship that no one experiences because the invisible man is not a real thing they at least to my knowledge no one's invented a suit that can do that although that feels like you know near future realistic kind of tech but i don't think anyone's experienced that but i think the relationship that you don't see there uh that happens before the camera starts rolling everything that happens if in the prequel of this movie right the gaslighting the emotional abuse and the control that drives someone to be in elizabeth moss's cecilia's position i think that is very real and that is an experience that many women have and i think yeah. what happens afterward is of course like the movie but i think that it feels so relatable and so real because the situation that the movie starts in feels like that happens every single day and i think that's what sets the movie up so well yeah no i, I really do love the first image of the movie right of just the arm of the husband of the said husband again the boyfriend draped over um Asia. over Elizabeth Moss and you think oh hey this is a nice scene they're in they're in bed together you know they're a nice couple and then the way that she just cautiously removes his hand from you know being wrapped around her it, it changes immediately how you think about 
that, you know, what you saw, you see, this isn't a, like a loving embrace. This is, I am holding you here so that you cannot escape. Um, and, and I thought that's a really effective way to start the movie. But yeah. And the other thing I'll say, I think an underrated aspect of, of Moss's performance is just that in the set pieces, right in that, the action scenes, if you want to call them that she's acting against nobody because it's, you know, she's acting against an invisible specter. Uh, and so I think that that can be difficult to do to, um, you know, to, to try and convey the right sense of dread and horror and terror to, as to what's going on when there's nobody else there uh, that, you know, the, the villain that you are running from that you're being tormented by, you can't actually see. And so I think that that is maybe an underrated aspect of, of Moss's performance that I think she also pulls off really well. Yeah. And I think it's something that we talked a lot about in a, in a, in a different way, but talked a lot about when we were talking about Lupita Nyong'o's performance last uh last year in, in us because of course there are other people on the screen that you're watching but in the scenes where it's just her and red her doppelganger there's no one there she's acting yeah. against, uh against the stand-in essentially so yeah um okay scott i mentioned a lot of the supporting cast um in, in that lead-in so you have of course aldous hodge playing the cop that uh that Cecilia goes to live with. Uh, Harriet Dyer is her sister. Storm Reed, who we've seen in a few things, who's in Euphoria. Yeah. Um, she is, is shows up as Aldous Hodge's role locked down. Yeah, uh, she shows up as Aldous Hodge's daughter. Um, Oliver Jackson Cohen plays uh, Adrian. Um, it, again, kind of a minimal role, but um, he is the chief antagonist here. Uh, anyone who stood out to you in the supporting cast, Scott? Yeah, I think, I mean, Aldous Hodge probably gets the most screen time. And so I think therefore kind of gets the, gets the nod. But honestly, this just feels like a movie that's so reliant on Elizabeth Moss's performance that it's really hard for me to point to anyone in the supporting cast and say, you know, they're the one who stood out and kind of really lifted the movie up or helped to bear part of the burden that Elizabeth Moss had. Because I just don't think anyone else in this film in terms of an acting performance matters very much outside of Elizabeth Moss. Again, I'll, I'll give that nod to Aldous Hodge. I'm, I'm fine doing that. I think he's a good performance. I think I, I like him in other things more and I'll remember him more for some of his other performances. I still want to see Clemency from last year because I hear he's in, yeah. in that and I haven't seen that yet. But I mean, hit, I think I remember him most from probably from Hidden Figures and Straight Outta Compton. I think those are the two movies that I think kind of put him more on the map. And so I think this is a nice compliment to the filmography that he's already starting to build. I hope he gets you know, a lead, like a really sole lead role soon uh, to, to show what he's capable of. But I think for me, this is a, this is a good, not great performance from him and also other members of the cast, just because, like I said, I don't think that they really have too much to do. Uh, I think maybe the one exception might be Michael Dorman, who plays Tom, which is Adrian's, which is uh, C's boyfriend's brother. I think he has some interesting scenes to, to talk about maybe and the performance that he gives. And I think a lot of the early two thirds of the movie make you wonder, or at the very least question what this guy's real deal is like where he really, where his loyalty or however you want to describe it really truly lies. I think that he plays that pretty well, but even then, again, I just go back to Elizabeth Moss because of how central and how critical uh, the movie kind of relies on that performance. 
Yeah, I agree. I, I remember Aldous Hodge from way back in the day in the in the classic TNT show Leverage. Um, uh, probably something that no one who's listening to this program will remember, but for some reason that was a show that I watched back in the day on TNT. Um, and so it was interesting in in uh, in recent years to see him start popping up and stuff and be like, oh, he's actually still doing things because I don't think anyone in that show really went on to do anything uh, afterwards. But um, yeah, I want to see Clemency too. I do hear the same things that he's really good in that. Uh, and I was hoping that he would have something to do here, but he really doesn't, as you said. Um, with that being said, I do like the harshness of these performances of, of Aldous Hodge and of Harriet Dyer, who plays the sister. The fact that, you know, they, they obviously care about Cecilia, uh, but when she starts behaving the way that she does and, and, you know, making these wild claims about an invisible man and everything, they are, they react like you would expect real people to react and, and like real people do react right to like unsubstantiated claims of abuse or, uh, you know, of, sexual assault or whatever in, in, in the real world. Um, and so I think that that feels authentic, right? That feels true to life that as much as they care about her, you know, sometimes even the people closest to you um, uh, are not on your side when you don't have um, the proof or the evidence uh, that that they need or that, that the outside world needs uh, in order to substantiate your claim. And so that is one aspect of their performance that I think it comes across well, though I agree. I don't think, I, I mean, I think it is all about the Elizabeth Moss performance and I don't think that's not a, a knock on the movie. I just think that that's, that's the way that the movie needs to be and that's the way that it is. Yeah, I think I struggled a little bit more and this is actually one of my problems with the film is that I'm not actually sure sure that I totally buy all the way they react to everything that's happening. I get like, maybe this is, this goes into one of the central themes of the film of that gaslighting component and, and that believing survivors and what they're telling you and, you know, what's substantiated versus not substantiated. I mean, I think what the, like one of the great parts about this film is that it takes what we now consider, a, okay, you believe the survivor in this scenario. And then it takes, like, it tries to logically push that further and say, all right, we need to get from, okay, we don't believe survivors when they tell our sto their stories of domestic abuse. Uh, and we've taken it where now, all right, these people believe Elizabeth Moss's story as a survivor of, you know, real domestic abuse. But then what happens next to get you to a point where, all right, now these people no longer believe you because mm -hmm. this is where you're at now. And I think for me, it's one of those things where I guess I was a little bit jarred by how quickly everyone in the movie seemed to turn on her. And I think a lot of things go into that. You know, Aldous Hodge, of course, one of the key points that, that kind of turns him against her is the fact that, you know, he's left to believe that she has hit his daughter. Yeah. Uh, you know, her sister, of course, is this email, like it comes from her account. Who else is to believe? And I think the sister one was the one that I found most bizarre to not hear out the fact that, you know, this whole um, and the movie, like in you know, this whole relationship happens in that way. Of course, we don't understand the context of the relationship that they have that again, I don't know if, if C has, has treated Emily like that in, in a way before or something like that. But I was, I guess a little bit jarred by how willing or unwilling Emily was to the notion that maybe it wasn't C that sent such a, what seemed like a pretty like outrageous email to her about what she thought of her and, uh, what she thought of her being in her life and and, and her uh, role in her life, and I, it was it was a little bit jarring in that way. So I, I was a little bit taken aback by that, and and I found some of the lack of opportunity or belief that was given to C's character 
again, a little bit jarring. Uh, and I wouldn't necessarily see myself in that situation reacting that way. But a lot of these characters, you know, at, by certain points in the film are believing her more and are giving her uh, that time. It's just the immediate reaction is maybe a, a little bit uh, off what you might expect from a movie that is about like believing the survivor. Yeah, I, I mean, as a counterpoint, I will say, I think from the beginning, there is something that seems not quite right about the relationship between the sisters. Like, I think e even like in the early stages when um, when Elizabeth Moss is just at, at Aldous Hodge's house and the sister Emily comes over sometimes, she just seems a little exasperated with with uh, Cecilia's behavior a little bit to the point yeah. where you think, well, maybe there has been something going on in the past year. Um, and, and, you know, you would think she would be more sympathetic towards her sister, but that doesn't seem to be the case. So I guess that didn't bother me as much. Also, you ha you do have a scene which is I mean, it's going to be the reconciliation, right? It is the scene where it seems like Cecilia is making some headway and convincing Emily about what's going on or that she, she may be, that, that Emily is at least being more receptive than she has been to what Cecilia has been saying. Then of course, a plot twist happens. Um, a big plot twist. <laughs> a big plot twist, yeah. So so I think that there are some, um, I, I think in general that, that worked pretty well for me. It's just like, I think the personal nature of that email is really what gets Emily's goat and, and the personal nature of what happens to um, the daughter to Sydney is the point where Aldous Hodge is finally like, okay, you got to get out of here or we got to get out of here. Yeah. Um, and so I, I guess, I guess it worked a little bit better for me than it did for you, but yeah. Um, it also just feel like in the moment, I mean, obviously it's inexplicable to explain someone getting hit like that if it's not the other person in the room. So I I guess I kind of get that, but it also like doesn't seem like she's the one who hit her in the room. Like I'm a, you, I don't know how you explain it. I guess if you're say um, Sydney in that scenario, if you've just, you know, you've just been knocked to the floor or hit or whatever, even though it doesn't really seem like Elizabeth Moss's character is within arms reach enough to hit you. Uh, I don't know. Like again, it just, I, yeah. It, I think there are little points in the movie like that. Again, as good, a, the better a movie is, the easier it is to nitpick, but it's moments like that that I think uh, are, were, made me raise my eyebrows a little bit. Fair enough. Um, okay, Scott, and talking about some of the themes of the movie, obviously abuse is a big theme in this movie. And I think that where the movie really hones in on this is just sort of the fact that um, living living with the trauma of an, an abusive relationship after it's over or after it's seemingly over, right? Um, and, and the fact that, yes, maybe the person, maybe you've gotten out of the relationship, maybe that person is out of your life in some way, but the memories of what they did to you and the scars of what they did to you are not going to go away, you know, uh, right off the bat. You're not just going to snap your fingers and it's like, well, he's gone now. Uh, and we see sort of the, the physical scars that are left and also the emotional um, scars. Um, do, you, do you think that it was effective in the way that it portrays sort of the aftermath maybe of abusive relationships? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting way to convey how a, a emotional abuse or, you know, Vi like relationship violence or relationship abuse sticks with you after you have extricated yourself from that specific situation. I mean, in all these stories that, you know, have been put through national media attention, you know, whether it's the women who were abused by Harvey Weinstein, no matter what it is, I think that you, you see, I mean, even outside of that situation, you, you know, you look at uh, like the Brett Kavanaugh things, like all these things you, you talk about, situations where the individuals have been affected for really long times 
after the actual situations themselves uh, have been over. And and it's not because you know X or Y person is continuing to contact you and and abuse you in a certain way. Like the abuse has ended, but the consequences and the ramifications of all those real life situations carry over longer. And I think that this movie is an interesting way to show that in a different way and to create a sort of metaphor for you know these negative consequences of abuse that happens in the past and how they continue to affect you in the future. I think that there's several different ways to interpret what's happening on the screen. I mean, one is, of course, what you're seeing on the screen with this abusive relationship. This person is quite literally still abusing her. But then there are also, I think there's like the more metaphorical way to interpret, like, this is actually, you know, the type of abuse that this person has endured is what is the continued form of abuse that people continue to to live and experience in their in their minds, in the world that they've been sort of, I guess, conditioned to respond to so to speak. And you have these memories, like you described here, like these memories of these experiences that you can't unhave, like you can't remove those from your brain. And I think a lot of what you see at the initial part of the recovery process that Elizabeth Moss is going through with, you know, her sister and her sister's ex-husband, I think those are all things of like people trying to treat, uh, I guess, Elizabeth Moss's C in a way where she you know, providing her uh, an environment for her to move past that abuse in that relationship. And you see how trying that is for her sister. You see not necessarily how trying, but how exhausting it is for uh, Sydney, which is the the daughter and and James, who I believe is Aldous Hodge's character's name. And you see how trying it is for them. Like, you know, like when she's right at the beginning of the middle, when she's like trying to be brave enough to go outside and go get the mail. Or whatever. I think that's an example of like the what you'd expect to see in the real world when someone, of course, the invisible man is not a real thing, not still haunting you. But I think that the movie carries it forward, like I said, uh, in a really original way to show you the type of trauma that you can kind of continue to re-experience from that sort of uh, domestic abuse and domestic violence. And I found that to be really powerful way uh, to show that in a in a kind of a metaphorical sense. And I wonder how many people are, are going to make that connection because maybe it's a little bit harder to make, but I, it really, really worked for me. Yeah, no, I, I think it works really well um, as well. Just the idea that the trauma is sort of the invisible, invisible specter, right? It's not, even when that person has gone away, this invisible element that other people can't see, they, they only see the, the reality that, hey, you're out of this relationship now. Um, but there's this invisible aspect that the person who is abused, the victim can only see, and that continues to stick with them um, long after the relationship. Um, I, I think that is effective. And another aspect that I think works re reasonably well of the, the abuse theme is, is the gaslighting. And we, we brought up that word a couple of times, but I think that it is a central idea here. I mean, Cecilia says herself towards the end of the movie, right? Like, he's trying to make me think that I'm crazy or whatever. And that that's really um, what a lot of uh, what a lot of his actions come come down to. And the, the fact that he is invisible, the invisibility of it is sort of what contributes to the situation, because, you know, she's observing all of these things that she can see that they're literally happening. She has the scars and everything to to say so. But no one else in the outside world can see them. Uh, and so she doesn't really have uh, any, anyone there reassuring her that, yeah, what you're seeing is actually what is happening. Uh, and so maybe starts to have some doubt in her, her own theory of, of what's going on and, and in her own, you know, perception of what, 
what she's experiencing in the house. And so I think that that is effective. I, I, I don't know. I still think that it, it's a high bar, obviously, but I think that Midsommar probably did a little bit more with the this whole theme and what was maybe a little bit more nuanced just because I think the... <laughs> this is maybe where the sci-fi aspect of it kind of uh, hurts it maybe, or at least in comparison to that movie of just sort of the fact that this guy creates, you know, an invisible suit and all of this stuff just to, uh, just to do this to his wife, I think is a little, we we have to reach a little further. We have to suspend our, our disbelief a little bit further uh, to, to get to that. Just to haunt his wife. I I assume she's just doing it as a part of his research, a part of his work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But regardless, I think that that is not something that is, you know, as realistic, I think, as what we're seeing portrayed in in Midsommar, just sort of the micro microaggressions that um, accrue in, in this relationship that has gone on long past its expiration date, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's where I have trouble connecting as strong. And, and I think it's just the proximity of the films, right? I think if, if the movies had come come out, you know, several years apart that that I wouldn't feel the need to make that comparison but i think because we have seen midsummer so recently and the that theme is still fresh in my head and seeing that theme particularly portrayed in a horror movie um mm. or a, a psychological psychologically disturbing movie i think uh, i the comparison just naturally jumps to my mind and i think because we did see such a strong portrayal of that in midsummer i maybe didn't resonate with it quite as strongly here but i still think it is an effective part of, of what's going on uh, with the theme of abuse. Yeah, for what it's worth, I didn't think of, of Midsommar at all when I was watching this film, just because they because their genres are, are, I mean, their subgenre at least is so, is so dramatically different. You talk about sci-fi versus some, I don't know, like fantasy world of Sweden and cults and ritualistic sacrifices. I mean, they feel so non-adjacent to each other. But in terms of a theme, I, I see what you're saying. I, I think that it's just such different approaches to to showing it, I think that Midsommar and you you see it build up within the relationship, but but everything in an Invisible Man feels like it's focused on what happens after you're out of, a, of an abusive relationship, and you don't see that that part of it nearly as much in Midsommar. And I think like like That's you're true. saying here with the Midsommar in terms of, I mean, again, we see so little of the actual relationship in Invisible Man, but I, I would agree with you that Midsommar portrays the in relationship component as a relationship breaks down, like you've described, and goes on for too long, and and the things that lead to that relationship becoming so toxic definitely feels like it's more fleshed out, you know, if, if almost infinitely so in, in Midsommar, but Invisible Man, I think is doing, it's trying to do something different. So I guess I, did, I didn't see, make it as as immediate a comparison, but I also see from your perspective, what, what you're saying there also because Midsommar was, you know, higher, I mean, it was high on my list of last year as well, but you saw it like three times. You you spent a lot more time thinking about it than I, than I have maybe. Yeah, no, I, I, I think, I don't think that that's a natural comparison that is going to spring to people's heads either. I just think that the mo- the movie made such a strong impression on me, obviously, and and has stuck in my mind since then. Um, that that that's why the comparison came to mind. I, I don't know. I mean, these these things, obviously, like the gaslighting and all that, it does happen after a relationship is over. Um, I just think that the way that that's portrayed in this movie through a, a guy who goes and, and creates an invisible suit and um, is is tormenting his his wife or his, his girlfriend in that way, uh, obviously d- doesn't uh, bear much similarity with how these things probably go down in the, in the real world in terms of yep. the aftermath of these relationships and, and the gaslighting that occurs there. But um, let, let's move on and talk a little bit. I mean, we, we have, 
hinted around it a lot, but the the Me Too aspects of the movie and sort of the the idea, I, I think with the movie, uh, the the element of Me Too that it really uh, locks in on is sort of how do you how do you uh, convince people without any proof, right, without any evidence uh, that you have experienced what you are saying you have experienced, you have experienced abuse, you have uh, experienced sexual assault, whatever it is, uh, I think is is a very relevant question because you do see this question come up all the time when women come forward with allegations, you know. Well, how can you prove it? You know, what what evidence do you have to show that this really happened? Um, and and I think that uh, and this this goes towards the ending a little bit, which we I do want to talk about for a second. But um, the, the, what this movie posits maybe is that there are going to be times when you just can't produce that evidence. Um, but that doesn't make you wrong, obviously, regardless of what society is saying. Did you think this part of the story worked? Yeah, I think for the most part it did. I think that there are some some weak spots and not because of the way that it tried to portray its message necessarily, but I think just by the product of, of what it is. It, to, to me, like I said, I think that it, there is some really strong, you know, narrative themes around this whole idea of the, of, you know, the abuse people experience in relationships and how that sticks with them after. And I think all that's a part of the Me Too conversation that, you know, we've already been having it's been having, you know, we've been having this conversation now for years across many movies when we talk about it on the podcast, but also just in, in society and culture today. But uh, as well, I think there, there are some more, some, some weaker spots. And, and I was reading a review of the film to talk about how, you know, Lee Winnell, and you, you talked about Upgrade earlier, you know, couldn't help add in certain uh, upgradey parts to the film. Like you do get some action elements of the film. You know, when you talk about how she escapes from the mental hospital, for example, and even going into, you know, the the finale of the film, kind of really, I guess, the last act of the movie almost feels much more of a sci-fi action horror than sci-fi psychological psychological horror uh, to some extent. And and I think that's where, if I was going to point to a part where the Me Too elements, I shouldn't say that they get undone or cast aside, but they just kind of take a back seat to the other parts of the narrative when I think that you could have brought that forward more and, and done more with it. In those elements, and that's where I maybe point to and say, well, you know what? Instead of making the, instead of going all in and under this idea that you're going to have this character like be validated in a sort of, I don't know, like violent way, like be validated in a way of she's going to go and you know take her vengeance on these people who have abused her. I think that the movie could have gone a more subtle and different direction around reaching that finale and that conclusion. I think that there's is some like some satisfaction that gets left with the finale of the movie for sure. But I don't know if that satisfaction feels as rich or as nuanced as it might've been if it carried through those themes from the first, you know, half to two thirds of the movie, but we're talking about Me Too here and carries them through into the finale and, and holds people uh, who are involved in that accountable in that way, rather than just taking some sort of like vigilante justice almost uh, to the film. I think that that, uh, I still, like I said, I still got some satisfaction and enjoyed the finale of the film, kind of both finales of the film, so to speak, uh, both set pieces towards the end of the film. But I wonder if the if the movie narratively would have held together better with these themes if it if it went a different direction. Yeah, no, I, I think that's an interesting point. I think the thing about the ending or the last, you know, third quarter of the movie, which I had a little bit of a quibble with. And I kind of alluded to this at the start, talking about how I think Lee Wanell maybe 
bites off more than he can chew. I, I, there's a whole sort of subplot that happens with um, with Elizabeth Moss being pregnant. Uh, obviously, we're into spoilers at this time. Yeah. Um, and and I, I don't know. It, it felt like he was, uh, particularly in the one scene that happens at the mental hospital with the brother, it yeah. felt like they were trying to like tackle uh, reproductive issues a little bit in a way as well. Um, and I just felt like it, the, he's biting, like I said, he bit off a little bit more than he could chew. I think that the the elements about abuse work really well. The Me Too, the you know, uh, people not believing your unsubstantiated claims, stuff like that, that, that felt really effective to me. And it just felt like he was, he was writing the script and he was like, we're going to take on every single women's issue that there is out, out there in this, in this one movie. And I don't think that they really gave the, that issue, maybe the time or consideration that it probably deserved um, in, in the movie. And really, like, it, like I said, it comes up in that scene with the brother and then it kind of just goes away. Like they, they really just kind of sideline that scene for the climax of the movie for uh, the, the way that the, the plot is eventually resolved. What, what happens is eventually resolved. There's really not much more mention made of the fact that, um, that she was pregnant or, or that, that um, this whole thing about how she was taking birth control secretly um, so that, because she didn't want to have a child with her husband. With, yeah, with, well, uh, there's the part where he stops her from, I mean, she's like fake committing suicide in the shower. Right. right. He stops her and that goes back to the child part. But no, I think that's an interesting point. I think I had a problem. I problem is almost too strong a word, but I had a quibble to use your word. I think that's the better way to put it um, with, with that as well. But maybe, maybe for a different reason, it just sound, it just came out it just came off as like kind of ridiculous this whole notion of everything that's happened between these two people that like he's willing to forgive it all if you stay and like have the kid yeah as opposed to just like i don't know being a normal human being and starting a new relationship with a new person it just, again that goes back to some sort of like the weird reactions that people have to certain parts of the uh, certain plot points in the film that I struggled to understand maybe in the first half. I think the largest one that I would bring up is around this whole idea of her being pregnant. Uh, in terms of reproductive rights, I guess I didn't necessarily think of it in that way, but I think that what you're saying with reproductive rights is still spot on in a way because, uh, I mean, not to get it like too into the weeds, but like if you tamper with someone's birth control and have sex with them, that's another form of rape. That's not a reproductive, I mean, I guess it depends on how you define reproductive rights and stuff like that, but that is a form that is a form of sexual assault. And I think that lends itself to the, obviously everything that we're happening in terms of like domestic abuse that we were just talking about as sort of the premise for the film. And that's more of it. And to me, so when I heard that, it just was like, well, that's just like adding another thing to the to the pyre of like shittiness of this relationship that, yeah. that kind of led into it. And again, it didn't necessarily feel like, it felt kind of throwaway or really just a device to push this film forward into its resolution, um, which again, I think feels a little bit different than what you're talking about, but I think gets us to the same point of feeling like that was a, a, a shoehorned in part of the film that didn't necessarily work cohesively. Yeah, no, I, I think it is clear that they he wants to do something with, you know, women's control over their bodies and yeah. their own pregnancy, their ability to get pregnant or not. That's but funny. it's just, it, it feels out of place in the movie, um, I think. I, I, I mean, somewhat out of place. Again, there are these themes going on. I just don't think he needed to introduce that if he wasn't going to give it, again, the consideration and time that it probably deserved. But yeah. um, Moving ahead to the very end of the film, Scott, um, obviously the way that this thing sort of wraps up is that, uh, and again, we're into spoilers here, but uh, Elizabeth Moss, her husband, you know, comes out of the invisible suit Boyfriend. and 
boyfriend. Sorry, I can't get it out of my head. But uh, and they're they're at their house, and she is wearing like a wire, and basically is is trying to get him to admit what he's done um, and record it all. And he won't do it, right? Like he he just keeps trying to get her back to go yeah. back into the relationship. And so eventually she decides just to take matters into her own hands. She gets the invisible suit and she kills him. Um, and I, I kind of saw it as Scott, uh, again, going back to this idea of like proof that, that you need, right. To, to convince people, I, I kind of saw it as, you know, the smoking gun evidence that you really want to get. I mean, here she's trying to get him to admit on the tape, right, that he has done all of these awful things. You're not really usually going to be able to get that kind of smoking gun evidence in these types of cases, particularly when it's like a sexual assault case, right? It's a one-time thing that happened. It's not, you know, a long-standing uh, history of abuse um, where maybe some sort of evidence has accumulated over time. Um, yeah, you know, the smoking gun evidence that that people really want that are like, well, we're not going to believe you unless you produce, you know, this, unless you produce him on videotape or whatever, doing what you said he did. Um, it's not it's not always possible to achieve. And so I think what it shows is that women maybe are often driven to extreme actions because of how society acts towards them and because the other avenues feel so hopeless and towards yes, yes. Some sort of resolution. So they don't really see any other action, right? Then what Elizabeth Moss does here to, to kill her husband. And maybe that's a bit of an extreme example. I don't know that we have yeah. people killing their husbands left and right because their, you know, their allegations aren't believed or whatever. But I think the underlying point there uh, is, is true and, and effective. Yeah. Now for, for me, I, again, as a part of like the overall metaphor, I think it, it works really well because not only what you're talking about is absolutely true for, you know, cases of, of you know sexual assault rape whatever it might be in in the one-off scenario but even if you take it more explicit and, and literal even for the scenario that she's in even in cases where there's longer term relationship abuse that is happening a lot of times because you're in a relationship a lot of people won't believe that certain things happened or that they'll believe certain things that happened but they weren't abused because you were in the relationship why didn't you get yourself out of the relationship why didn't you do all these things uh to protect yourself from these things happening to you and get yourself out of the situation people again just like refuse to believe the survivor in i mean on a personal level one point but also two through those systems of accountability that we have whether it's the criminal justice system for situations like the one that you maybe see in the movie or you know on college campuses with the college adjudicatory process but you see you have these situations that even outside of the one-off scenario even in those relationships people not believing the survivor and not really having any avenue to hold people accountable because like oh you were in a relationship that wasn't sexual assault or that wasn't rape because you were in a relationship with them you were married to him it's like all these things like some people just basically are incapable of believing that something could be abuse or rape or sexual assault because you're in a relationship and so i think that it's true of the one-off scenarios that you're talking about and it's also true for i think the scenario that has been portrayed here in the film i think that's what makes it powerful and again i, I do think it's an extreme outcome to the situation i think most people like i don't think we have a problem of women killing their you know rich white male husbands yeah. uh, for abusing them i don't think that's a problem in the us or, or really anywhere but i think that it is an interesting it is an interesting note to leave the movie on and and an interesting note of empowerment and i don't think it's necessarily glorifying it because you know it, if you're to take the aldous hodge character perspective here at the end he's like really i mean he knows what happened but he's really not sure what to make of it and, and what to do. It's clear that he doesn't feel good about it, uh, about what happened. He feels uneasy. Uh, again, 
again, maybe some Midsommar vibes there in the ending, right? You, you're not sure about how to, how to feel about this act of violence that a uh, woman takes against her, you know, former lover. Yeah, that's fair. I, I, I see that point more uh, more so maybe than and, about Midsommar. And, and I was going to make this my last point, but since since we're on, the, on this point, I am tired of the movies, these horror, horror movies in particular, the last shot of the movie just being like a close-up of the character of the, the lead woman's face uh, because we had it in Midsommar, right? We had it in Black Christmas. Now we have it in the No, no one saw family. Black Christmas, thank God, except yeah, for you. Mercifully. Um, <laughs> but regardless, it's the last shot of that, and we have it again here, and I'm like, okay, I think it works really well in, in Midsommar, right, because of the reaction that she's having, but I don't know. I, I think I, I, I'm getting a little tired of seeing that shot to end the film, especially here. I'm not sure that it really added anything to, to what we had just seen. Yeah, I'd say just send a, send a note to Blumhouse about that. Maybe they'll listen. Uh, I think that's a good point. Um, all right, Scott, I think uh, we're ready to move into the wrap up now. Um, favorite scene or moment from Invisible Man? Yeah, I mainly want to bring this one up. I think it's a great moment for sure. I think there's several moments like this but this is kind of the pinnacle of it just because we didn't get to, we didn't really talk about it all in the course of our conversation it is the scene in the restaurant that you're talking about yeah. I think that if, if you're thinking if you want to point to one moment in the film that is sort of the show-stopping moment of surprise horror i don't know other, any other way to put it it's, it doesn't quite feel right but you know just surprise horror of the film it is in the restaurant when she's meeting when c is meeting is meeting emily her sister and again, like you said, you feel comfortable, you feel safe in this moment because mm -hmm. you did you did just have her escape from the house where uh, Adrian was there as well, and, and she got away from him. And you think that all right, the natural the natural cadence of the movie is going to be all right, intense scene, you know, have a moment to take a breath, and then we'll go back into another intense scene after that. But instead, what you get is the scene where you think that you're safe, and all of a sudden, uh, Emily's throat has been cut open in the middle of this restaurant, and C is. Uh, the knife is in C's hand, even though it is uh, the Invisible Man who has done it. Uh, I think the end of the movie makes you question whether it's whether it's Adrian or whether it's his brother Tom. You know, either one of them. One of them has done it. One of them has just cut open her sister's throat right in front of her. Uh, it was a uh, oh shit moment for sure in the film for me, and, and the one that was the utmost. So the other one I will say is the attic scene where you go the entire scene mm -hmm. where you're like shit, something's gonna happen, something's gonna happen, and at the end of the scene when she is about to go down the ladder, she throws the paint down and he's right there. And that was, that was another good jump scare of the film. Yeah. The, those are two standouts for sure. I, I think I got to go with the restaurant scene. I usually try to pick something different, but it is such an arresting scene yeah. that for, for the reasons that you mentioned. Yeah. I, I saw this movie uh, with friend of the pod, Danny, and she literally gasped uh, when it oh, happened. I, so yeah, I did too. It was, yeah, it was a gen genuinely gasp inducing moment. Um, and so, so yeah, it was uh, a, definitely the most memorable scene from the movie. I think. Yeah. I will say one other thing is that uh, I know some people may not have been as as much of a fan, at least from the reviews that I, the few reviews that I've read, of the more actiony parts of the of the film, and they think that maybe the, the movie should have just stayed in its lane, so to speak, and and done and done the kind of sci-fi horror elements and and left the upgradey action parts out of it. But I thought some of the the action scene in the mental hospital is shot really well. I think mm -hmm. there's some really good cinematography uh, in that scene. And I didn't obviously didn't mind the action too much. I'm an action uh, movie kind of guy. I do I do like those film. And I, I don't think this movie overdoes it uh, so much. It, it was pushing it towards the end maybe, but I don't think it overdoes it. And so it worked for me well. And I think the cinematography and specifically the mental hospital is is really good. Yeah, I never saw Upgrade, but I think it, it 
convinces me that people are probably right when they really liked Upgrade or at least really liked the action from Upgrade uh, after seeing this movie because I think Lee L does have a, a clear talent for for staging action sequences, whether they belong in this particular movie or not. Yeah, Upgrade was one of the movies on back in 2018 where I, I wish I had seen it. All right, let's put a score on it, Scott. What do you give The Invisible Man out of 10? 8.1. Really good film. Best film of the year so far for me. 8.8 for me, I am higher, uh, and yet I don't think it's the best film of the year um, for me yet. That's, that, that'll show you our differing approaches maybe to, to the scores here, but uh, I, I think I'm giving a slight edge to Onward, and, and also Emma, I think. Uh, I just enjoy those films a little bit more, but this is an excellent movie, and you should definitely see it. All right, Scott, that'll do it for our review of The Invisible Man. After the break, we have a couple of news stories uh, to get to, including some big uh, casting news for a Mad Max prequel, uh, as well as the latest uh, coronavirus updates. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, recently we were talking about what we thought maybe the first big movie back in theaters would be uh, after the all of this coronavirus stuff is over. And of course, we have we still have no idea when that's going to be. Um, but we we got a hint maybe this past week about what maybe the first movie or one of the first movies back in theaters is going to be. And I know you want to tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we speculated, you know, how many movies are going to get pushed before we see the end of this, you know, coronavirus effects on film and entertainment. Obviously, with the relief package passed this past week, hopefully the entertainment uh, companies, I should say, I guess the, the the theatrical experience companies like AMC, Regal, et cetera, are going to get a bit of a relief package to keep them solvent until after this crisis ends. I think that's probably, again, we could probably do a whole special episode just talking about the effects of the coronavirus on specifically movie theaters and stuff like that. But that, you know, hopefully, hopefully that's a positive note to have. But in terms of the actual movies that we're going to be seeing, right now, Warner Brothers has gone ahead and indefinitely delayed movies like In the Heights. I mean, that movie's coming out at the end of June. They've indefinitely delayed that. I think that's the right move. I think absolutely. I'm not surprised by that. Ultimately, it going that deep into the summer already. Uh, but obviously, the big target in there for... Warner Brothers is, of course, Wonder Woman 1984, which, which was scheduled for, I believe, the first week in June, something like that, the first or second week in June originally. It has been delayed. It it does, unlike a lot of the other films from Warner Brothers, does have a release date. They have moved it to August 14th. Very strange time for a movie like this to come out. It's very rare that you would see a movie like this come out in August. Uh, I think if this does hold, this will almost certainly break the record for August for an August release. But I think that that is one. I mean, that is the interesting part to me is that, uh, like I like we were talking about last week when I thought there is absolutely no way that a movie like uh, Wonder Woman would go straight to VOD. It would always come out in theaters no matter how long they delay it. We see that, and we see that it's you know Warner Brothers is that first uh, studio that wants to put a stake in the ground for a post coronavirus uh, outbreak release. We do know that No Time to Die, of course, is coming out as in Thanksgiving as of right now. Obviously, that's you know a little bit further out in the future and. If things are still not resolved by then, then we have a big, we have even bigger problems on our hands, I'd imagine. But yeah, the fact that Wonder Woman 1984 is scheduled for August 14th, I found uh, really interesting. I think again, that kind of shows that 
not not unlike other times with Warner Brothers trying to taking swings, is trying to get out ahead of things and really put their stake in the ground somewhere to get you know give them a strong position. When you have something like Black Widow that's been indefinitely delayed, doesn't have a release date. When you have uh, other movies throughout the summer like Top Gun Maverick, which I don't think has officially been delayed yet, but I mean it feels like is inevitable that it will. I think the only movie that's kind of in question in terms of huge tip pole movies that hasn't been delayed yet that I think might be on the bubble is something like Tenet. So oh, yeah. the fact that you have July, that's that's middle of July, like July 17th, like the once upon a time in Hollywood time from last year in terms of like mid-July. And I do wonder if that film is going to survive that date. And even if theaters are back open by then, does Warner Brothers, because this is still Warner Brothers here with Tenet, do they want Tenet to be that first film that come that comes out? Do, does any studio want to be the first big tentpole film back in theaters? Because if you look at China, they started to reopen a few hundred theaters uh, last weekend, not this piece, this past this weekend, but last weekend. Total failure. Some some theaters literally didn't even have a single person buy a ticket over the course of the entire weekend, which is insane. Again, this is only a small number of their theaters, but the fact that you know things have turned a corner in China, things are getting better there. They they've hit the apex and they're starting to recover and people are not going back to theaters yet, which I think is understandable. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's the same in the US, but when you see an experiment like that fail in the manner that it did, especially with China putting out like kind of um, older releases, like putting out things that you would think are like sure bets. They're not new movies, so you're not getting the new movie crowd, but you're getting, you know, fan favorites. I think something like Avatar, they were showing like Avatar. They were showing some of like the Avengers movies things like that. Like they were showing big releases that you'd expect people to want to go out and see. I mean, for example, if my movie theater in downtown Boston opens up with The Dark Knight or something like that as a movie they're showing, like I'm going, like I'll, I'll be the first person back in the theater. I'll go see that. I'd, I'd pay big money to go see that again uh, in the theaters and have the chance to see that in IMAX or something like that. Um, and that just didn't work in China. And I don't know if other people would do that. So I think it's a super interesting question that theaters are going to have to wrestle with and movie studios also are going to have to wrestle with about when your first temple theater is. But I will stop my rambling here and, and say that uh, Wonder Woman 1984 being the first uh, release delayed release date on the calendar for late summer, early fall. I guess that really is just late summer. Late summer is the stake in the ground that Warner Brothers has laid. I just wonder if it will stay there. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're. I, I do think you're underestimating one thing in your your analysis there, Scott, and that is the stupidity of Americans. I think that we have seen that very clearly in this in this time. The fact that you know there are stay at home orders all over the country, and yet the beaches in Florida are still covered up. People are morons. That's your um, that's your that's your college you know your college kids companions uh, from Wake Forest and other places like that. That's the problem there. I I don't. Those aren't the main people who are going out to theaters on opening weekend. Wonder Woman, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah, that, that's fair. But uh, my my point is just that I think um, I think more people will go out to, to to the theaters as soon as they're able. I think people are going to be dying to get out of the house uh, as soon as as soon as people as soon as the president or whoever says it's okay, you can you can go out outside now. Uh, I mean, you can go to the theaters. Easter, so I, I don't even I don't know. They don't have anything to yeah, work well. It's summer. Uh, True. Yeah, we'll 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 be fine. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that people are going to want to go out to the theaters. I think that this is a smart risk for Warner Brothers to take because they can just move the release date again, right? If if it looks if things get worse, they can be like, well, you know, we didn't think they were going to be this bad, so we're just going to move the release date again. Where, but if if it turns, no, it, like it is marketing budget spent though to advertise, like, yeah. 
change your marketing campaign to be August 14th and then have to change it again. You're going to spend more money. But I mean, it, maybe it doesn't matter with a movie like Wonder Woman is going to make a billion dollars. Yeah, no, I, I think that you're right about that. But again, I think it's a smart risk for them to take just because if this movie comes out within, you know, one or two weeks of the quarantine being lifted, I think everybody's going to go see this thing. I mean, and it was already going to do well, right? But I think it has the potential to do even better now with this uh, August 14th release date, which I think is, is, is it's well positioned, I think, to where, where I, in my head, at least, I'm, I'm seeing right now, maybe this situation resolving itself and theaters being able to open again probably around that time yeah i mean i'm still keeping my fingers crossed for tenant in mid-july i think yeah i can't say that my my optimism is increasing day by day it's it's probably going the other way if we're being honest but i do hope that that theaters and and movie studios by that point are are still are like are open putting movies out and i don't care if i'm the only person in the theater if i'm the only person in the theater in my IMAX theater for Tenet. Like, I'll be so happy to have the theater yeah. to myself. <laughs> and I mean, the Wonder Woman 84 trailer was awesome, I thought. So I I was really looking forward to the movie. So I don't mind being the first person in the theater for that either. Uh, I'll, I'll go out and take the risk for everyone else. Um, all right, Scott, uh, moving away from the coronavirus for uh, a moment, I, I do want to bring up some casting news that uh, came across our radar this week. Very exciting casting news. Um, regarding a Mad Max prequel, particular in particular a Furiosa pre prequel, Furiosa being the character played by Charlize Theron in Mad Max Fury Road, um, and it, like I said, this is a prequel, uh, or at least it seems it will be a prequel because Charlize Theron will not be reprising her role as Furiosa, and in talks to play the role, uh, George Miller, the director of all the Mad Max films, has been in talks with. Anya Taylor-Joy to play the role of Furiosa. Uh, Scott, this is someone that we've talked a lot about on here. I, in particular, am a huge fan of Anya Taylor-Joy. She was just in Emma. She was excellent in that. Uh, but really, in, in all of her roles, and I, I have often beaten the drum for her to get cast in some sort of big franchise-type movie. Of course, I wanted her to be the Catwoman and the Batman movie, uh, although I think Zoe Kravitz will be awesome, too. But... Um, I am very excited to see her name attached to this product, the pr project, because obviously Mad Max Fury Road was awesome. It's one of your favorite movies of all time, Scott. Um, and uh, I think that she would be perfect for this type of steely action heroine role uh, that I don't know if this was the type of thing she was going to do in the new mutants or not, but um, we may never get to see that uh, movie. Who, who, who even knows when we're going to see that movie after all this time. Uh, so I think this could be, a real chance for her to make her big break, which as much as she is a name that, you know, people who follow movies recognize that you've probably seen her in a movie and enjoyed her performance. Um, she's not a star yet, but she deserves to be. And I think this is the type of role which could get her there. Uh, thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, Mad, I mean, I rewatched Mad Max Fury Road for my birthday this past week. That was the movie that I watched on my birthday. Amazing movie. Absolutely incredible movie. I mean, Charlize Theron, I have not, I don't think, been. I don't think I've been coy about telling that I think she's one of the best actresses that, you know, is currently is currently performing in movies. And Ani Taylor-Joy is definitely someone who I think, in spite of my uh, lukewarmness on Emma, it wasn't her performance that made me lukewarm about it. I think she's spectacular. I think she's great in Thoroughbreds. I think she's great in Split. I think she's great in so many things that she's done. And I think she's definitely one of the rising stars uh, of, of this current generation of young actresses coming up. 
between here and Saoirse Ronan and Florence Pugh, all those, you know, that trifecta and, and more beyond that as well with Thomasine McKenzie, et cetera. Uh, she's definitely one of the best actresses up and coming of that age. And, and if she got a role that explores the past of Furiosa and maybe her early days as being a part of this tribe that's led by, I'm forgetting the guy's name actually right now. Uh, and Morton, Morton Joe. Joe. Yeah, and Morton Joe, you know, being a part of the, you know, that tribe of people and, and her coming, you know, coming to rise to that Imperator status that she has at the start of Mad Max Fury Road. I think it's absolutely the kind of performance that would get her that mainstream recognition that right now she's just lacking a little bit. I don't think New Mutants will be that for her. That movie, I mean, we are going to see that movie eventually, I think. I don't even know, I guess, at this point. But I think we're going to see that movie eventually. I mean, it's finished. It, I mean, it's been finished for years, it feels like. But yeah. you know, I, I think we are going to see that movie at some point. I do not think that movie is going to be that for her. That That feels like a split kind of performance for her. Like, people are going to watch it. People are going to probably give her recognition for it, but it will not land her, you know, mainstream recognition, the likes of something like a plain Furiosa would at Mad Max Furiosa. And, and not that I couldn't come up with other people who would be really well equipped to play that role. I mean, look at the other people that I just kind of named in line with her for these up and coming young actresses. Like I think any of those people could also play this role, but as long as one of them is getting it and it being Ani Taylor-Joy, I'm absolutely here for it. I think this is amazing news. I hope that that does go somewhere because this is still very early stages. It sounds like it's from the tweet or the article that I was reading. It's basically that they had, they Skyped and that they talked about this, this particular role and this particular performance. And I just hope that that goes somewhere. I hope that, that those talks go further. And that of course I want this movie to be made as soon as possible because I'm such a huge fan of Mad Max Fury Road and um, obviously vibing with whatever George Miller's wacky uh, vision is for this post-apocalyptic universe. I mean, George Miller is not a young man, right? He is no, uh, 75, 75 years old. So I think he's going to want to get this made sooner rather than later, probably. Um, and so, yeah, no, I think you're probably right about the new mutants. I think that probably is in the split category just because, I mean, she'd probably be playing second fiddle again to, to Macy Williams and the new mutants. Whereas I think, uh, I mean, whereas she also did that in split playing second fiddle to, to James McAvoy, of course, who had the really show-stopping performance there. So um, I think she needs to get a lead role in something you know, more substantial than Emma or Thoroughbreds for uh, for her to really break out. But here's to hoping that this will be the movie or that maybe even something sooner will will be the movie. But yeah, all right, Scott. They'll be like three years down the road. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're just in talks right now. But Okay, Scott, that should just about do it for this episode of Some Like It. Scott, where can our listeners find you on Twitter? at Shelton 2013 uh, And I am at Scarby Dent. We hope you've enjoyed this episode uh, of Some Like It. Scott, if you have and you'd like to support us, uh, don't forget about our, our Patreon page at patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Uh, there are a bunch of tiers over there if you want to support us, but even if you can't support us, don't forget to like, rate, review, subscribe, do all of the things uh, that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope you will be back for our ne next episode on which we will be doing something. Uh, we, we will have an episode for you next week. Uh, don't worry. Uh, and we hope you'll, you'll stay tuned and be ready for that episode next week. But until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.